We have come as far as Luke chapter 5 as we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke. Luke, a Gentile physician, writing the letter of Luke and also the book of Acts to a gentleman named Theophilus, who was the man that apparently Luke was in employment to. Doctors in that culture were employed to wealthy individuals. Apparently Luke was that, for Luke was a physician. And he was a follower of Jesus Christ and, and apparently had shared Christ with Theophilus, his employer, and Theophilus came to know Christ. And as a result, Luke now wanted to work through all the different oral traditions and things that had been written about Jesus and come up with a very precise chronological uh, understanding of these events so that Theophilus in verse 2 of chapter 1 may have certainty in the things that he is hearing concerning Christ. That word certainty is a big word, especially in our culture today. And though we are 2,000 years removed from the original writing of the Gospel of Luke, I believe that the certainty in which Luke instills to Theophilus is a certainty that he also can instill to you and I through the events that he has chronicled for us through the Gospel of Luke and also in the book of Acts. As we've made our way through chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry after his baptism by John the baptizer, we come to a scene where Jesus is in the synagogue and he receives the scroll to read from the scroll and then to teach from that scroll. And he reads from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, stating very clearly that he is the personal fulfillment of that text. That text was known by the religious leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. as a messianic text. Jesus is saying, in your hearing, I am fulfilling these words, uh, clearly stating that his identity, his true identity was that of Messiah. Luke then begins to continue that train of thought based upon the uh, understanding of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 of all the things that Jesus then did to substantiate the statement in which he made in chapter 4. And as we come now to chapter 5, there are two healings that Jesus performs of great significance. The reason for their significance is due to the fact that both conditions not only were believed to be rooted in sin, but also to be a judgment and a punishment by God, and that God and only God could relieve the individuals of both conditions. And those conditions were the conditions of leprosy and the conditions of being paralyzed from birth. By Jesus performing these miracles, it it obviously demonstrates to us that he had authority over such things, these diseases and so forth. But more importantly, that authority indicates to all of us here today that his true identity is that truly of the Messiah, of the Christ, God incarnate, the second head of the Trinity, proving and displaying that his claim concerning Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 was true. As we come to verse 12 this morning, let us understand first and foremost by taking a minute to understand the the larger context, the larger narrative that the Bible is placed within from Genesis to Revelation. In the book of Genesis, we start in the first two chapters of God creating all things and creating Adam and placing Adam in a garden of perfection, Adam in a state of perfection, then creating woman from that perfection, perfection continuing in her creation and so forth. God, therefore, adopting a phrase from Texas, it's all good. And things were perfect until the inception of the fall, the temptation that was uh, offered to Eve, then, of course, consummated by Adam there in the garden. And here at Calvary Chapel, we believe in a literal Adam and Eve. We believe in a literal six-day creation. 
In fact, some who oppose the idea of a six-day creation often oppose it from simply the argument of, well, how could such a work be done in six days? Well, my concept of God is I don't understand why it took God so long. He could have done it in one day if he so chose to do so. After the fall of Adam, and I believe Adam to be a real person based on New Testament theology, Paul clearly indicates that sin was brought in and conceived through the first man, Adam. And yes, the word Adam means man, but it's always used as a pronoun, a name, in the context of the New Testament. I say that because in that state of perfection, God declaring all to be good, and then the fall introducing so many issues into the creation of God bringing in sin and death primarily, but then all the effects of sin and death upon the entire created uh, world. Of course, then the judgment of Noah and left eight people, and then the repopulation of the world and so forth through them. But one of the narratives that we as American Christians, I believe, sometimes neglect, and I do believe it's really due to our lack of understanding of the Old Testimony, uh, the Old Testament, the Old uh, Testament is the fact that God is restoring all things back to that original state. The doctrine of restoration clearly is stated that God began in a garden. In Revelation 21, he ends in a garden, restoring the world from the effects of sin and death. And each glimpse in the gospel. Uh, in the Gospels that Jesus heals someone, uh, a miracle takes place, the restoration of one who from leprosy or one from the dead or one from being paralyzed is glimpses of the total restoration that will take place at, after his second coming in the new heavens and new earth. And though today, from our vantage point, it's difficult to see and understand that, isn't it? Though individually, God who has promised that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So you and I who are followers of Jesus Christ, things are working in our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the image of perfection, right? Christ was perfect. Now that perfection will not be realized until we are in heaven with the Lord. We are a constant work in progress until then. And God, who is faithful to have started that work, will be faithful to complete that work. And I'm so grateful for it. But because we're all works in progress, we should all extend each other love and grace. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to blow it as individuals, as a church, etc. But that's where we need to show the grace to one another, understanding that we're all a work in progress. None of us have arrived yet. That being said, let us understand that when we get to Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth are developed. Listen to these words concerning the restoration of all things. Revelation 22, I should say, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be there any uh, accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His names will be on their forehead. Day and night, there will be no more day and night, I'm sorry, there will be no more night, excuse me. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a glorious promise. However, though, as our trajectory is moving us closer to that image of Christ through the work of God in our lives, we see the downward trajectory of the world around us. And as that gap widens, there's going to be greater confusion and understanding, well, Lord, how can everything be working together 
bringing us to this place of restoration when things seem to be going so vastly sideways and downward in our world around us. That's exactly what God said was going to happen. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But it is going to get better. And Jesus Christ's first coming was an inauguration of that. He began that work here in this world. And through his church, you and I today, that work continues. And as a result of that, we are on an upward trajectory and we know that one day all things will be made new. A new heaven and a new earth. God's in the restoration business of individual lives and of all things. And that will climax there in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what Isaiah speaks on. That's what the psalmist prophesies. This complete restoration of all things. See, God is not simply interested in uh, saving you and then putting you in heaven after you die. There's a process. He's working in you. He's restoring you. He's making you whole again. He is allowing for the new life in us to take its full fruition and begin to uh, overcome the effects of sin and death upon our lives. This is why we are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are brand new. So let us see that our salvation is part of an entire process an entire perspective that God has in restoring all things and we should be aware of that now to identify with Isaiah further Luke gives us two accounts and each one of them is significant we begin with a leper of the society who came to Jesus asking if he would be willing to heal him In the statement, are you willing, the leper is completely convinced that Christ is capable. But is he willing to heal the leper? Leprosy was one of the cruelest conditions an individual could have in that culture. Leprosy was one of those things that devastated an individual to a point that I don't believe that we could ever truly understand unless we experienced it for ourselves. In that society, once an individual was deemed to have leprosy, that individual was isolated from all friends and family, was completely and utterly rejected by the totality of the society from the religious leaders down to the individual's that he once or she once associated with. It was the most incredibly lonely state an individual could find themselves in that culture. For example, religious leaders despised lepers at this time, historians tell us. As a result, they mandated that they were to remain at least six feet away from any of those who had contracted leprosy. The word leprosy in the Greek actually is a word to designate many different types of skin diseases. But the fruition of it, the climax or the totality of it, was in the actual state of leprosy. In Leviticus 13 and 14, you discover that the Old Testament law gave a prescription for the priests to be able to identify diagnose, and therefore also uh, deal with those who were lepers. That's in chapter 13 of Leviticus. When you get to chapter 14, God gives a prescription on how to cleanse them after they've been healed of leprosy, which is very interesting to me. A disease that the society knew, and Luke being a doctor specifically knew, was not curable through any man-made methodology. And yet, there is an entire chapter given in the law concerning how a priest may cleanse one who has been healed from leprosy. So do you, do you think God was preparing for the healing of leprosy? Yeah. And so we find this individual coming to Jesus, disdained by the populace. Religious leaders flee from him. 
he takes one of the boldest chances by coming to Jesus while it appears others are around him. And in that culture, what would happen if, for example, a rabbi was teaching and a leper wanted to hear or maybe participate or even receive some kind of blessing from that rabbi? It wasn't uncommon for those others who were listening to the rabbi to take stones and to drive the leper away. So them merely just making themselves present was a risk that this individual was willing to take. He knew how everyone felt about him. He knew that he was isolated from everyone. He knew he was despised. He knew that the religious leaders had deemed at that time to believe that the leprosy was a form of severe punishment on behalf of God towards this individual. And yet he came to Jesus. And we pick it up in verse 12. As Jesus continues his ministry around Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, a region in Israel at that time that was intensely populated, around 2 million people in over 200 villages and cities. It was there that Jesus did some of the greatest teaching and also uh, most of his miracles. And in verse 12, and when he was in one of the cities there came a man full of leprosy. There is no doubt that he has leprosy. Luke is specific. He was full of it. It was consuming his entire body. And as you know, leprosy, when it takes its full effect on a person's physical body, it, it is a horrifically deforming disease. Limbs would literally fall off. You were in a continual state of perpetual dying, but you were alive to experience it all. And he took such a risk. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. What an incredible picture of humility as this man threw himself at the mercies of Jesus Christ. The touch of Christ may have been the first time that he had been physically touched by anybody in years. I can't even imagine the solitude that a leper would have gone through. They were expelled from their community. They were expelled from their home, often living in the crevices of valleys and caves within the countryside, surrounded by others with leprosy, constantly uh, surrounded by a visual uh, illustration and reminder of their eventual demise. And this individual comes to Jesus with no other hope in mind, fully believing that Jesus is capable of such things. He just wants to know, are you willing? Would you forgive me? I believe that he asked that question due to the misconception of the time. I believe he asked, are you willing? Because he wanted to know if this was truly a punishment from God. For if God wasn't willing, then it must be a punishment for something he or his parents had, have, had committed in their mindset at that time. But Jesus saying that he is willing probably relieved the leper greatly. This isn't a punishment that I'm experiencing. Though I may not understand it fully, at least I can be confident of that because God is willing. Jesus is willing to heal me of this leprosy. Be clean. And notice what it says there. And immediately the leprosy left him. I am amazed always when God does such things and how quickly he can change our circumstances, can't he? 
We don't know how long this man had been a leper. However, though, if leprosy was in its maturity, doctors proposed that it probably was 10 to 12 years that he contended with leprosy. 10 to 12 years in isolation, 10 to 12 years being surrounded by others with leprosy, constantly reminded of his personal fate. And yet, in a matter of a moment, in the touch of a hand, his entire life was changed. In a moment. I can't even fathom that. Talk about needing some time to process that information. And now he has been made clean by the touch of Jesus. A disease that only God personally could appear to heal. Jesus does it in his own name, in his own authority, by his own word. Because he was God and is God. This leper having to stay feet away from individuals. Check this out. If a a leper was walking in a street and the wind was blowing against him, you know, and coming your way, you had to stay 150 feet away from that leopard if you were downwind from him or her, according to the Jewish traditions at that time. And all of a sudden, the touch of a healing hand from this man who is God says, I am willing, be clean. And it immediately left him. And he, that is Jesus, charged him, verse 14, to tell no one. (laughs) Good luck, right? Hey, weren't you the guy with leprosy? Yeah, yeah, something really cool happened. I can't tell you, though. Yeah. Really? Uh, Wow, what happened? Oh, I can't say nothing, you know. You know, if if I, I don't know, I can't do it. Well, come on, I'm your best friend. No, can't, can't do it. Can't do it. Good luck. Check this out. Tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof to them. And this was according to the procedure found in Leviticus 14. Jesus says, now go, be examined, check it out, Let them confirm that you have fully been healed. With that confirmation and the offering given by the individual, we then get the impression that after one was found to be healed, the proclamation from the priest would allow society once again to interact with them. And so Jesus is not only restoring his personal health, but he's also restoring him to the society by commanding him to go and to be uh, inspected by the priest in fulfilling the laws of Moses at that time. One wrote, he says, If found to be leprous after an examination by the priest, the diseased individual would be isolated from the rest of the congregation and was required to uh, wear torn clothes, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out as he met people approaching, I am unclean, I am unclean. And all of that changed in a moment. Now he could cry out, I'm healed. I'm healed. This undoubtedly gets the attention of the religious leaders Because as we continue on in verse 15, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. Jesus models for us continuously that he was always about his father's business in all that he did. And that was communicated and established through the consistent prayer life that Jesus demonstrated for you and I. However, though, that wasn't merely an example. I believe that Jesus fully loved to fellowship and to commune with the father through prayer. 
I believe that should be our heart's desire also. When we spend time each and every day with the Lord in prayer and His Word, I believe that we should do so because we love to spend time with Him. We love Him. When I approach the Word of God in my devotional time, it's not to increase in my personal intellectual knowledge of biblical theology. It is to know the heart and the mind of God. It is to get close to Him as He desires me to grow close to Him and to know Him as a loving Father. As Paul says, we can call Him Abba, Father. And as I read from Genesis to Revelation and I make my way through the Scriptures in my devotional life, I ask Him, Oh Lord, draw me even closer to You through Your Word through Christ. I want to know You personally and intimately. For I love You. And I love you because first and foremost, you loved me. It's an incredible experience to sit at the feet of God just reading his word. May I encourage you to pray before and afterwards. Because it just, again, allows God to minister to your heart through the word of God. If you need encouragement concerning the word of God, may I challenge you with the Psalm 119 challenge to remind yourself of the incredible value of the Word of God in the life of the believer. The Word of God is not meant to be a pragmatic formula that we simply, you know, put A plus B to get C. It's not merely meant to be a prescription to all the woes of my life. It is meant to be a method of revelation, special revelation from God to man concerning himself. And in and through it, we gain and grow in our knowledge of him and the depth of our relationship with him permeates. And as a result of knowing him so intimately and abiding in him, as Christ said, abide in me continuously. That should be our passion, to get to know the Lord. His word often is, uh, you know, set aside because people will say, I was reading it and it's just not personally relevant to what I'm going through today. Keep reading. For often God uses his word of God to prepare you for what is still yet coming. Instead of running to it as we would a simple, you know, pill in our medicine chest. Oh, I've got a headache. I'm going to pray. Oh, if the prayer doesn't work, I'll take a couple of pills. And, and then the headache goes away. And some of us approach the Word of God that way. Oh, I'm going through such difficult times and I'm going to run to the Bible and, and, and so forth. And God can meet you like that. Yes, He will. But often He's saying, I want to prepare you before you get to that spot. Maybe reading my word will help you make good decisions so you don't find yourself in that spot. But it's all about getting to know God as we read through his word. So as Jesus heals the individual of leprosy, his popularity begins to abound further. The crowds are gathered. He departs, withdraws to a desolate place to pray. And then Luke brings us to verse 17. And on one of those days, now as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, which is far south, which is really interesting. That would have been a true hike. And from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. Definition of persistence. Most scholars believe at this point Jesus is now teaching in the courtyard of Peter's home in Capernaum. And the crowds were so vast and so large, and those crowds now included the religious leaders. Undoubtedly, after hearing of the miracle of the cleansing of the leper, they needed now to personally examine who Jesus was. Because they had set the standard in the minds of the people that only God could heal leprosy. So now they had to find out for themselves. 
because undoubtedly when that man came to show them that he had been cleansed of leprosy, it began a conversation in the, uh, the uh, hallways of uh, Jerusalem and other synagogues of this man named Jesus. And as they came to scrutinize, as he was teaching, as he did, and when an individual taught, he would sit and those who were listening would stand. I want to do that here. I, I like that idea. Um, have you stand and me sit. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden, as he was teaching, I can picture that in the homes in Jerusalem, they would have a courtyard area, and then in the rainy season or in the wet season, they would literally put tiles over the courtyard to protect them from the weather. And it was these tiles that were disturbed by those bringing the body or the individual in before Jesus. And I can imagine he's teaching and he's he's lecturing and he's he's going through a passage and so forth. And all of a sudden, you hear these footsteps on the roof and and dust starts to fall. And all of a sudden, the, the roof opens. It's like, glory be to God. And then these four guys are bringing their buddy down before Jesus to be healed. I love that persistence. I love that faith. I can hear Peter at this time, are you kidding me? I just got those tiles up there. You know, and if Peter was from New York, he put a New York accent on there. But as they demonstrated this, and you can read Mark 2, 1 through 12 for the parallel account, this paralytic could do nothing for himself and relied completely on others, and these others brought him before the Lord. Persistent enough to bring him down through the tiles and the mist before Jesus, in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, that is the four individuals who had brought him, the confidence that they had to disrupt Peter's own roof to bring this man in, Jesus was blessed by And he says to him, man, get up, take your bed and walk. Is that what your Bible says? Very interesting statement. He says, no, man, your sins are forgiven you. I believe Jesus did this purposely, of course due to the fact of those who are now there in his presence listening to his teaching. Not only was God the only one capable of healing anyone of leprosy at that time, or a prophet of God, of course, in the Old Testament, a prophet could do the same. But to distinguish him from a prophet, he goes one step further and declares that this man's sin had been forgiven him. Scholars debate if this man's paralytic condition was due to his sin or not. That culture believed that all maladies were due to one's personal sin or the sin of the parents. However, though, when you get to John 9, you discover very quickly that Jesus corrects this assumption when the disciples came to him and asked, Rabbi, Well, who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered and said, It was not this man's sin nor his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And as a result, they went... And he goes on to say, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. A healing technique that has not been adopted by the American church is the spit and mud ministry. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Shalom, which meant sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus is saying that it wasn't sin that caused this man to be blind, but for the fact that God allowed this to occur, that God may be glorified through it. He had a divine, this blind man had a divine appointment with Jesus to be healed of this malady. We don't, 
I don't believe that we can rush to a conclusion to say that simply because Jesus said this in the context in which he did, that this man's sin had led to his paralysis. I believe that Jesus now is clarifying to the religious leaders that he's more than a prophet because now he himself will do what they believe is so uh, radical, so audacious. He's going to forgive this man of his sins and then heal him also. And notice the visual lesson that Jesus wants to bring forward here. When he said this to the man, verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Because only God could forgive sins. The prophets couldn't, including Moses, personally forgive sins. This is outlandish. It was blasphemy to do so because they fully believed that he was equating himself to be God. For who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, (laughs) they weren't going to get away with this, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? It means that they didn't even talk out loud. God discerned their hearts. Jesus discerned their hearts, knowing what they were saying. And he said to them, okay, explain to me now which is easier. To say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Good question. By him simply saying your sins are forgiven, there's no true way of validating that. So it would have been easier for him to say your sins are forgiven because we can't see behind the curtain to see if they actually have been or not. It's just a statement that is made without any kind of proof in its wake. But Jesus said, okay, but that you may know that the Son of Man, identifying himself with a term that is used in the book of Daniel, a very interesting term that Luke will capitalize upon in his entire gospel. And it's interesting how Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, allowing greater approachability by the people in whom he is ministering to. It is clearly, based on Daniel's text, a reference to God. Let me read it for you in Daniel seven thirteen through 14. I saw in the night vision, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the man, the Son of Man who goes to the Ancients of Days, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Clearly, a term for the Messiah. But by Jesus using this to identify himself, rather than king, rather than Christ, which he could purposely have done, he says the Son of Man, to allow for, I believe, greater accessibility to him, and surely that's demonstrated in the ministry in which he uh, fulfilled in the three years of that time when he reached out to, the, to the, you know, the edges of the society, to those who were cast off by the world in general. Claiming to be the Son of Man... He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Again, in an instantaneous minute, this man is healed. Who knows how long he had been bound to that bed. Think of it. Incapable of doing anything for yourself. Laying in a bed, laying in your own filth, day in and day out, hoping that someone would show compassion or mercy to maybe even turn you over or to go one step farther to cleanse you. What a horrific place to find yourself. And Jesus, in one touch, heals him. The healing was an outward illustration and demonstration of the inward reality of the sins of this man being forgiven. 
And Jesus is demonstrating to all that they may know that the Son of Man, the Christ, has the ability to forgive of sin. And in verse 25, immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what had been lying, what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. You know, it's interesting that Jesus says, all right, well, you've already destroyed Peter's roof, so don't leave your bed laying around. Let's go pick it up, take it with you. I'm sure that man, that individual, wanted nothing to do with that bed ever again, right? But it certainly was a reminder of where he was and who he was before coming to Christ, before Jesus healed him of his infirmity. And in verse 26, an amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The word for extraordinary there in the Greek is a very interesting word. It is the word that we get our word paradox from. We have seen something paradoxical today. We have seen something that we fully can't comprehend and process because the leper being healed, now this individual being healed and sins being forgiven, this could only be done by God, but Jesus is a 30-year-old man, 31-year-old man at this time. We've seen a paradox today. This shouldn't be unless Jesus was exactly who he said he was that he was God, and that he was capable of such things. By Luke introducing these two healings from the very beginning of this letter to Theophilus, it is as if Luke is saying, here are the two big ones. Anything else is easy for God to handle. In fact, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe any verse in the Bible without issue. And as a result, he is saying very clearly from the very beginning that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one prophesied in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And the anointing of the Lord is upon him to do these things. And each and every time we see a glimpse of these healings, we are continuously should be reminded of the fact that God is not only restoring those personal individuals, but he's restoring everything. This is it. And through the death of the cross and then the re confirmed acceptance of the sacrifice in the resurrection, we can know that what Jesus inaugurated in his first coming, he will complete at his second. And though we are growing to be more like him each and every day and the world is digressing from him and running from him the other way and is being plunged into a greater depth of darkness, in all things he's restoring that in which he purchased there on the cross. And though I fully don't understand it, I can sure believe it. And I can trust in that fact. Because I often don't understand why we experience the things we experience as Christians. The persecution, the suffering, the cruelty. I don't understand how God can wait a day longer seeing the consistent injustice in the world around us. But yet, he's got all of it in control. And to demonstrate that, 2,000 years ago, he sent his son and began a work that he will complete at his son's return. So why does he wait? Why does it seem like he procrastinates? Because he's desiring that all come to repentance. He's desiring that right now, individuals turn to Jesus Christ, repent and believe upon him. And we can believe with confidence, and be certain, as Luke states here to Theophilus, based on these writings, and only God could cleanse the leper, only God could heal the paralytic, but more importantly, Jesus demonstrates that the physical is not nearly as important as the spiritual to Jesus. He could have healed this man, right? But if the man continued in his sins apart from God, eventually he would die and be apart from God for all eternity, so let's deal with the eternal issue first and then the temporal. Now, am I meaning to say that God is not concerned about our physical well-being? He is. And he can interject. 
and desires to interject for his glory and for his purpose. Do I believe people can be healed today? Sure I do, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do I believe he does so in a manner that glorifies him? Yes. Am I leery of those ministries that have healing ministries and glorify the healer rather than the one who's healing? Absolutely. I'm not going there. But where I am going is to believe that God is restoring things. I'd like to ask you a question right now personally, if I may. Do you believe Christ is sufficient for you? It is a question that I believe Christians are inadvertently wrestling with today. If Christ is sufficient for all things, and his word is sufficient for all things leading to life and godliness, then let us have faith in the sufficiency of these things. Let us not look to believe that the world can offer something that God cannot provide for us. Now, what am I saying by that? Let me clarify. Does that mean we don't go to doctors? I'm not saying that at all. Does that mean we don't learn from the wisdom that has been gained through what we would consider common sense? No, I'm not saying that at all. I do believe in the sufficiency of Christ. I believe that God can restore a person in their totality and in their wholeness as he so desires. I don't think it's wrong to consult doctors. I don't think it's wrong to uh, go to for physicals and even go to the dentist. Yes, paying people to drill holes in your teeth. I don't fully understand that, but I heard somewhere that it's a good thing. But what I am saying is that do we believe Christ is sufficient? And there's a balance there. And there is reasoning that has to be prayed through. But if God and his word are sufficient, let us not be take captives by the philosophies and of this world through empty deceit, as Paul wrote in Colossians. Both of these individuals realized their state. The man with leprosy knew that he was separated from everyone, didn't he? He was constantly reminded of that each and every day. He knew he was dying, a slow, painful, difficult death. He did not need to be reminded of that fact, undoubtedly, each and every time that he went home to his cave or to the crevice in the rock that was populated by other lepers. He was reminded of that fact. He was reminded of the fact that everything was hopeless when it came to man. They had nothing that they could do to offer him, to restore him, and to heal him. When it came to the individual that was paralyzed, each and every day he was reminded of the fact that he could do nothing for himself and was completely dependent on the mercy and compassion of others for intercession in his life. He did not know when that would come about or even if it would happen. And again, he knew that there was nothing that he himself could do to save himself. This is a perfect picture of one who is apart from Christ and in their sin. In a person, when a person is apart from Christ, when they walk in non-belief of Jesus Christ, they are alone. They are separated from God. They're at enmity with Him because of their sin. They are in a continual, perpetual state of dying even though they don't personally realize it. And though they should be reminded by seeing each and every person around them who is not living, but I would argue just simply surviving, they are not reminded of the fact that they are dying and that what they have now is the best that they'll ever obtain here or after their death. They don't realize that they are helpless and can do nothing to save their self and that they are completely at the dependency and the mercy of one who is capable of saving them, and that is Jesus Christ. But if God is willing, 
If they will turn to him and repent and believe on him, he will receive them and give them new life and heal them of the effects of sin, which is death. And even though we may die, we shall live as Jesus stated. Friday at our youth group, it's always one of the most exciting times of my life. I can't believe that the Lord waited this long to introduce me. I I feel like they challenge my heart and hairline each and every time I interact with them. I love them dearly. And one of the exercises we did is we went around the group and we said, now name one word that describes you perfectly to see if they could summarize who they believe they were. And other than Josiah, who said meatloaf, which I'm still wrestling with and working through today, all of them were positive. And it's amazing how we often don't see ourselves as we actually are before God, do we? And often because we feel that we're better or we're not as sinful as the person sitting next to us, His grace and His mercy and doesn't seem to have nearly the impact that it should upon our lives. But when we read this, let us understand that before we came to Christ, we were that leper. We were that paralytic person. And only through Christ can we be restored to being whole before Him through His grace and His mercy and His love. And all who come to Him, He'll cast none of them away. I love, that, I love that question. I know if you're willing, you can heal me. And the first touch he had in years was that of God. And he was healed. If that's you today, I ask you to come to Christ. You need him desperately. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to restoration. It's through him. And being God, the one who created us, he's perfectly capable of fixing us. And you'll never be alone again. You'll never be separated from him again. You'll no longer be in a state of dying, but you'll be living, and that life will be more abundant than you can possibly ever imagine. Am I saying it's going to be perfect? No. Am I saying it's going to be easy? Absolutely not. But during difficult times, there is this promise of peace that surpasses all understanding that will depart to you and part to you from Christ. There's this feeling that you know that you're not alone. It's more than a feeling. It's a, it's a conscious awareness that God will never leave you nor forsake you and that he loves you so deeply and dearly and that everything that you are experiencing in your life, God is using to bring about that renewed, restore image of Christ, that perfection in your life for eternity. What a glorious truth. God said it this way, why die when you can live? 